Hello everyone and welcome to another episode at Bottled Up. This is episode number 71. My name is Meg and I'll be joined by my co-host and co-founder, Sunny Bahugna, for this conversation with the one and only Nick Ferrier. Now, Nick is a performance psychologist and is the founder of his own psychology clinic. Now, Nick, in his own words, Nick is on a mission to help athletes, business people, or even everyday people to do the right thing at the right time. Nick grew up in the coastal town of Mornington in Melbourne Southeast, where his early years were shaped by his love for surfing and extreme sports. This passion then shifted to swimming in his latter years, where he had aspirations to compete at professional level, only to succumb to a career-ending shoulder injury that shattered his dream. It was during this challenging period where he dove into the wonderful world of performance psychology, and in this episode, Nick talks about what he has learned. From the idea of confidence over confidence, he goes through the acceptance model where he sheds light on how embracing uncertainties can be a transformative experience and techniques of implementing this model, emphasizing the importance of distilling the noise and pressure into repeatable behaviors that can be executed in any circumstance. Now I can speak for Sonny and I and say that we found this conversation to be truly engrossing. And honestly, it was as if we were sponges to the knowledge Nick was sharing with us. We hope you enjoy the next hour just as much as we have hosting it. So without further ado, this is Nick Ferrier. Hundred percent. Um, so I bottled up. We don't really beat around the bush. We get straight into it. Uh, and Mank and I had a very pertinent question that we wanted to ask you. Uh, a big thing with bottled up is we're very focused on conversations. For Mank and I, there was a couple of conversations around February 2020 that kickstarted this project. And since then, we've always um, typically started these conversations or these episodes with, you know, a conversation that's changed your life. Um, and this could be in the last year, this could be in the last five years, or this could be throughout your life. Um, but just looking back at all the conversations you've had, it doesn't have to be the, the biggest, baddest conversation, but what's a conversation that's kind of changed the trajectory um, or, the, or the way you think about life? Very good. Very good and deep question to start with. I like it. Um, <laughs> to be honest, it was the first thing that popped to mind as you, as you asked me that was the... Hmm conversation that i had with a sports psychologist uh about 12 years ago now so which essentially shifted my trajectory from being an athlete into a psychologist um so that that was probably the first thing that that i can think of anyway luckily my in my fortunate position i get to have really good quality conversations every day so if you ask me next week that might change um, so I'm, I'm in a very good and, and fortunate position with that, but that was definitely the first thing that popped in my head. Yeah. Yeah. Happy yeah. to go into a little bit more detail if, if, uh, you're interested too. Yeah. Yeah. No, I'm, I'm, I'm very curious. The, what, what was it about that conversation? Cause, uh, we're going to unpack it in a little, in a little bit around your life as a professional athlete and the pivot you've had, but was there something in particular about that conversation that sort of struck a gong in your, in your head? Yeah, it was, it was definitely the fact that. So without sort of skipping too far ahead, I, I didn't finish high school. So that was to, to pursue the athlete pathway and do all that. I part of part of that plan was I don't need to do year twelve, VCE, it's fine. Mm. I'll pursue this pathway and then if things don't work out, I'll sort of land on my feet somewhere, it's fine. I'll have a backup plan. Mm. So university was never on the cards for me at all. And then this conversation with this psychologist where it was like, you've actually got quite a good demeanor 
for for this sort of thing have you ever thought about pursuing this pathway and it took a while for it to sink in because at first it was like mm. are you serious like that requires uni and like a lot of years of study so i don't know about that but uh it was i don't know what it was about the conversation there was like this certain level of belief or something from her that like i actually believed that i could be good at this so i was like oh, all right you know what cool let's <laughs> let's have a look at that properly and and see see where it takes me and here we are so, so for those of out there that who aren't really familiar with the work that you do, how would you explain what you do in like the, the shortest shortest form or shortest term? So I, I heard, I'm going to steal this line from a couple of uh, senior performance psychs and sports psychs in the space. Uh, and the, the summary is we help athletes do the right thing at the right time, which was... Mm. From a, from a cognitive standpoint, <laughs> we leave that the strength and conditioning staff and the skill acquisition guys, they, yeah. they get to do their bit and then we do our bit. And that's, uh, yeah, I've definitely borrowed and, and probably butchered that. Um, but yeah. but uh, that's pretty much, yeah, the overview <laughs> summary. But I, I, I think there's something beautiful in the simplicity of it and, and the way you describe that, Nick, because I feel like in, in a world where we've got so much information and so many people, I guess, doing a lot of different things, we kind of get lost in that noise um i don't have a, i don't have a point at the end of this but i i really appreciated like the simplicity and you just getting right to the point on that one i would love to take credit for it but uh i can't <laughs> <laughs> don't, we'll, we'll edit that part out no one has to know okay <laughs> i like that thanks <laughs> so you work with who are generally your clients are they normally just athletes are they businesses are they like who, who are you normally dealing with on a on a daily basis yeah, so at, at the moment, it's it's the majority of athletes. Um, I have very, very few general population clients at the moment. Um, it's Yeah, it definitely athletes at the moment. But prior to, prior to getting to this point, there was a lot of general population stuff in going through the training pathway and things like that. So I have managed to, like, like anything, you sort of got to build a bit of a, a bit of a profile and a bit of a reputation and, and sort of prove that, you can actually offer some level of value to to people, um, especially if you if you're talking with with athletes or or high high performing individuals in a business sense. There's a bit of a it's almost like a qualification process before you're allowed to work with that population because it's mm. it is a it's very high stress and high pressure. So the last thing they need is someone to come in and give them bad advice or someone to come in and sort of wreck things from the inside. So people are very protective, yeah. I find, of letting someone into that space, especially when they're going to be vulnerable too, um, which, which which is a huge part of it as well. And what are the things that you're normally helping them with? Like what are the common uh, issues that people would come to you with? Uh, probably like it's all, it's all performance-based stuff mainly. So it depends on the population group, to be honest. So I've got... Like I work with the AFL a little bit through their players association. So I'm one of the referral sources for that. And the guys that will come to see me have been like delisted or they're dealing with injuries, like long-term injuries and sort of the uncertainty or, or sort of going back and forth between the VFL and the AFL for those that know that sort of terminology. Um, on the other side, I've got, so I work in a high school as well. Uh, it's a, it's a sporting high school. So 
sort of based on the American college system. So a lot of student athletes, but they're they're in high school. So there's that the adolescent population is a lot more complex because you're dealing with everything that comes with being a teenager on top of they're they're essentially professional athletes. Some of them are literally international level superstars. So it's mm-hmm. there's a lot of complexity with that too. It's like I'm at school and I've just been told off by the teacher for having my phone out. But two weeks ago, I was in you know Germany competing against the best people in the world. So there's like yeah, this weird sort yeah. of contrast between the two things, um, mm-hmm. which makes a really interesting work and and really mm-hmm. sort of um, yeah really beneficial work too. I get a, I get a big kick out of that. Mm-hmm. It's nice. You're um, just hearing you speak. I can I can see obviously a the passion and the interest obviously coming through, but the second part, which is probably informed by what we know is your lived experience and your ability to relate to some of these athletes. And for you, um, <clears throat> I think you would also self-describe sometimes perhaps a non-linear path into the, into the work that you're doing today. Um, and perhaps you also speaking to getting into this picture a bit later on in life. But for those listening in um, that just want to understand you a little bit better, growing up, you know, you've had a bit of a background as an elite sports uh, sportsman. Um, what did that look like growing up? What are the sports you were playing and what kind of happened along that journey for you? Um, it's all kind of one question, but just wanting to understand the background growing up. Yeah, no worries. Uh, so I so I grew up um, down on the Mornington Peninsula. Lovely, lovely place to grow up. I was very lucky. So grew up surfing and swimming and at the beach pretty much all the time, riding mountain bikes, doing that sort of thing. So I was massive on extreme sports when I was a bit younger, uh, skateboarding <laughs> and, and riding my bikes down. And <laughs> Yep, yep. <laughs> Always concerned. Uh, so, so that was that was sort of the beginning. But then there was things like tennis and golf and all those sorts of things introduced by by mum and dad. Swimming, proper swimming, was one of those. Um, but then, as I got a little bit older, and the swimming became a little more serious, and I became very interested in pursuing that pathway. Pretty much everything else dropped off, and the swimming became became the full time thing. So for me, swimming became the priority. It overtook school and general sort of life and all that sort of stuff. So that was that was the sole focus. So the main goal was obviously make the Australian team, the Australian Olympic team, or comp games or any of that sort of stuff. Uh, so that hence the the leaving school early because it was like I am so committed to this thing. I'm I'm going to launch a hundred percent. Fast forward a couple of years, I moved to Melbourne when I was. So I was 18. It's basically as soon as I could drive, I moved to Melbourne uh, to move to a different club that had already Olympic and former Olympic athletes at that club. So that was sort of a goal to learn from that coach. Learn a lot through that whole process. But then if we skip ahead to I mean, 2010, uh, I tore my labrum in my shoulder. So for those who don't don't know, it's basically the, the ball and socket joint. Uh, so it's got it's got like a protective sheath on the inside so that your shoulder can move freely. Hmm. I tore that. Uh, so as you can imagine, the bone rubbing over the tear is not much fun. Uh, that resulted in in a shoulder reconstruction, and then about it was close to twelve months of rehab where all I could do was kick up and down the pool with a snorkel, and I had to have my arms by my side for about six months of that tried to kind of make a bit of a comeback but my range in my shoulder was completely gone because essentially what they'd had to do was tighten the joint like tie it down so it didn't rub over the tear so i couldn't swim like i used to Mm. then we get to where i spoke to a sports psychologist 
which is sort of what I alluded to before, but she, um, she was unreal. So that was to help me through the injury process. And then some of those questions about what, what am I doing with myself now? Cause swimming, swimming was, that was my identity. So I had, I had no other ideas what to do. And then she introduced me to the psychology pathway, but it was interesting. I was reflecting the other day with, with a friend of mine who, who was asking me about the, the athletic identity stuff. And I said, it was so strange because for two years post-retirement from swimming, I still called myself a swimmer. So like I'd, I'd be at uni and meet a new person and they'd be like, oh, you know, hey, I'm whoever and who, and, oh, I'm Nick. Yeah, I'm a swimmer. And then I'd think to myself, you haven't swum for two years. You haven't been in a pool for two years. I think we need a new, we need a new name, a new title <laughs> for you to introduce yeah. yourself as. Yeah. Uh, and then, yeah, interestingly, it was just, I'm just Nick for, for a couple of years until I was proud <laughs> enough to call myself whatever the new thing was. So, yeah, I don't know if you want to open that can of worms about identity, but uh, we, we, we can go there. It depends how much time we got. <laughs> Man, I don't know about you. Do you prefer sea or land? I'm definitely a land person. Like, yeah. uh, me, me and my, me and my uh, flatmate, we have a very funny gag. He's afraid of heights and I'm afraid of anything below the sea level. So anything to do with snorkeling, not me. Anything to do with uh skydiving not him so, <laughs> yeah. so yeah definitely definitely follow Mate, for, the, for the longest time nick whenever i used to swim i used to not i obviously and I, I say that as if i figured it out i haven't figured it out i don't know how to breathe underwater so i used to do these laps <laughs> at the pool where i just used to hold my breath for like the complete like 30 or 50 meters Last time I checked, I don't think you can breathe underwater. <laughs> no, but you know how you, you know how you go you know how you go up to the left and up to the right. I, but but the thing yeah, is, I I, I, so I I ended up getting self conscious that I was just holding my breath the whole time. So I kept looking. I, I used to put my head, poke my head left and poke my head right, but I wasn't getting any air. <laughs> it was just so none of the lifeguards saw like sorry. any question marks. Oh god. <laughs> Anyways, that's also another can of worms. Well, you'd be good at holding <laughs> your breath that way. That's good. Yeah. That's oh, why I've got no brain cells, mate. No, <laughs> um, <laughs> it's it's really weird just just talking about that because I I I'm not a fan of swimming. I hated swimming when I was a kid. I remember I had a it was a moment in my childhood where my my dad wasn't the best coach, so what he would do is he would um, he would pretty much just throw me into the water and expect me to swim to the side, and I, I would I would get it I would get it done sometimes, but then. One time, I just it just didn't work. I panicked in the water, and I had a very I had a bit of an incident. Um, where he, he, when I was like what five or six years old, and ever since then, I've always been I've always been afraid of of going into the water. I can swim, but it's I do get a bit of anxiety before that before uh before my feet hit the water. Well, I'm looking I'm looking at that. I'm hearing that story, and I'm, there's a couple of things going through my head straight away. That I'm, I'm going, oh, well, it's, yeah. it's no wonder you hate the water if that's been your experience with it. Then uh, yeah, that makes sense. Mm. Yeah. For for you, Nick, uh, some of the identity stuff was actually quite interesting, and I can relate to it in in a different way. I guess Mank and I both both being sort of Indian Australians, and the way we introduce ourselves to people, etc. Um, for you, what was the was there almost this sense of attachment to what this world could have looked like if you were going down that elite sportsman path? Because sometimes it's it's really hard i mean it's really hard just letting that go right because for the for the longest time you know possible um that's what you were aiming towards and almost it's it's 
it's these things that often have ramifications on confidence and that plays out in all these other aspects of your life whether it's romantic relationships friendships relationships with parents um you can't help that perhaps you might be blaming certain people around you for for whatever it could be that's just an assumption but uh, it can it can be this lens in which you look look at the world in a very dark way. Um, what was your mental state as you were sort of navigating that, um, especially as you had constructed this identity for yourself for the longest time growing up? The probably the weirdest part about it was you're you're right. There was sort of this. It's a, it was a bit of a fantasy, really, of of what could have mm. been, and there was there's this deep belief and expectation that this is going to happen there's no there was no question about it and then of course when the road sort of shifts that takes a very very long time to undo that belief of, of like actually this isn't going to happen now but mm. the one of the biggest differences i noticed was and it's taken a couple of years to actually be able to accept this because saying it out loud sounds ridiculous so just allow me to sort of try to voice this in in the uh in the best way i can and I hope people don't take this the wrong way. But when I was when I was swimming, I was genuinely so confident about what I was doing that I couldn't associate with normal people. So people that didn't get what I was doing, they to me it was just like I haven't got time to try to explain. And to be honest, like I don't really care if you don't get it because I've got something that I've got to do, and I'm doing it. So pretty much get out of the way. I tell the story about going to the supermarket uh, as a 18, 19 year old and just full of confidence to the point where, and like it would be called cockiness now and arrogance where I would be walking around the supermarket thinking like I'm, I'm better than you guys. I'm better than you guys. Mm. Like I've got stuff to do, get out of the way. And reflecting on it is like, that's like, that's ridiculous. Like who's so arrogant like that and thinking like that all the time. Mm. But that was kind of the headspace that, I felt like I needed to be in in order to perform at my best because I was a sprinter. Definitely had a chip on my shoulder from from going up through school and all that sort of stuff. And you know, never never as smart as the other kids in school. Or the the big thing for me was never had the same build. So a lot of the guys I went to school with were footy players. So they were big, jacked up boys. And I was a little skinny kid. So like I'm I'm nearly six foot three. And when I was swimming at my best, I was about sixty seven kilos. So. I was I was quite thin for for how tall I was, and the guys who were beating me with these big monsters, shredded as. So there there was a lot of that sort of insecurity stuff. That now I've realised that's what it was. But at the time, I was just thinking, man, I'm like I am so good, right? <laughs> which is so mm, funny to yeah. look back on now. You get a bit older, a bit more mature, and you look back and you think, was that really the best way to go about it, or was it just that's just how it played out at the time? And now that I'm a little more grown up, I can sort of look back and, and see, I suppose, an argument for both sides. But it's interesting reflections. That was probably the biggest part of the identity was just like, you're not special anymore. You're just a normal person. And it was like, I don't want to be normal. <laughs> so that, that took a while to get used to. Mm. That's so fascinating because I, I remember watching uh, the Drive to Survive documentary. And it was all of all of the uh, Formula One drivers. And I, I can't remember exactly what the question was, but one of the drivers just said, I have to be like this. I have to be, I have to think that I am the number one driver here or else there's no point me even competing at this at this elite level. Do you, do you think also like just adding on that, you know, method acting, 
and you've got you've got these like actors that have to like play the part play the character mm. and they almost get obsessed into that world mm. is that the analogy here look possibly um i i would say probably the difference though is that a method actor will I'm, I'm assuming sort of temporarily believe the role that they're playing this this is like mm. properly like if you think in the roots of a tree this these are the deepest roots of that tree is is that belief mm. of I've got this thing to do and and it's going to happen and get out of my way and it is it's there's a lot of power in it and it, it it does make you feel quite strong and powerful when you're in that space but it also leaves you incredibly vulnerable when those roots die off <laughs> mm. and it's can I, it's a bit like oof can I can I ask I don't know if this is controversial at all <clears throat> they often say that a lot of professional athletes have a lot of trauma and that's what pushes mm-hmm. them forward and pushes those boundaries. Especially when you look at people like David Goggins, that's a very specific case. But they say the same with business as well. Those that succeed and do really well are the ones that feel that they have something to prove. You know, the immigrant family, uh, rags to riches stories, the ones with a chip on their shoulder that they have, they've got something to show. Um, do you think that's the case with sports? I know that's a that's probably a very it's, it's a, that's a blanket statement. It doesn't apply to everyone, but. Do you think there's often something that people are kind of um, using as, as I guess, kindling to the fire? To, I think, yeah, yeah I think every, yeah, everyone has their motivators. And for some people, it might be, yeah, they've got something to prove or, yeah, they might have that chip on their shoulder or a lot of the trauma stuff that I'm aware of just regarding business and sport and things like that. A lot of people just keep themselves so busy all the time that they don't have to address the thing because there's a concern that if they do, then the whole system is just going to collapse. Um, that That's in some cases, but yeah, my, probably my, my, my answer to that would be like, I think one of you said values, um, the values is a huge part of it. Like values, values are sort of under like it. Cause everyone has a set of values, whether they know what they are or not aren't figuring out what they are and then knowing exactly what they are and how to apply them is normally what motivates people. But the something like trauma, I haven't found to be typically motivating. I think it's almost glorified in some instances, like like David Goggins, right? Where mm. he's just obviously had a horrible time for a while. And so he's turned himself into this absolute weapon. He probably had that in him the whole time, whether he was going to go through that or not where we sort of glorify that side of things of like, if you haven't had this horrendous upbringing, then you're not going to be a beast. You're just going to be yeah. average. And it's, I don't think it's true because I know plenty of people that have succeeded massively in their lives and they had perfectly normal upbringings. So yeah. that's, yeah, it's, it's an interesting one, that one. Mm. That's what I love about this space, actually, because I've done a lot of reading on on performance psychology, and there's a there's a sense of realism to it. It's not like I love how in performance psychology, it's like the the theory and everything that's that's grounded in performance psychology is based off like realistic of realistic examples. Well, I wanted to go back to actually one of the things that you said just around around confidence, because we as human beings, I think we're very like correlational human beings. Like we are we say this happened and that happened and then therefore the two must coexist so for example if it's like i felt like i felt really confident about something and then i played well we then say okay uh, if i'm if i'm confident then i will play well is it is, is there a correlation between confidence and then your your performance and which 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 one's causing which is it the performance that's causing 
you to be confident or is it confidence that is um, uh, causing you to, to, to play well or yeah, so this, I like this. This is this is like chicken or the egg, right? And then depending on which side of the fence you fall on. So just for a bit of background, the the psychology space goes through sort of different phases, right? Like like any space, right? I'm sure finance is probably the same and things like that. But it's like it was very cognitive focused for a long time. So you've got the psychoanalysis stuff obviously like when it first all started and that hung around for a while and then the behaviorists came in and then the cognitive side of things came in but lately we've seen a big shift towards more of an acceptance movement so one of the things is with that is that any sort of feelings negative feelings or, or perceptions or anything like that, that that's just what happens and there's there's no it's sort of um point not pointless but it's futile to try to shift any of that stuff right so i'm feeling a certain way and if i try to cognitively change the way that i'm feeling that's not applicable to performance psychology or sport especially where you've maybe got like seconds to be able to do that it's just not happening so an acceptance model is more of that like i'm feeling horrible i'm just gonna i'm gonna kind of let this ride and there's ways that we run through that but regarding regarding the i suppose the implementation of am i confident or am I really good at the thing which then leads to confidence? So we talk about competence versus confidence. So there's a lot of that that goes around. As I've been reflecting on this model and this sort of theory over the last little while, I've come to the conclusion for now anyway, that competence equals confidence. It's not that, because if you're overly confident, but you're not very good at the thing, it's not great. Like it's not actually great for performance anyway. If I'm like, I'm a very average golfer. If I go out there and I have the same level of confidence with golf that I did with swimming and I'm in a competition, there's a huge disparity between how good I actually am and how good I think I am. So what I'm finding is the athletes that are really, really good at the thing are also quite confident. Now that doesn't account, that doesn't uh, account for everybody. There are certainly athletes out there that are exceptional at what they do and the confidence mm -hmm. can, can come up and down. But it certainly doesn't hurt to be extremely good at what you do and then your confidence builds. So this is probably more applicable to the business space or, or something like public speaking or anything like that. Mm. There's there's basically this un, unwritten rule of if you don't know 10 times more than what you're talking about, you're going to like this is where the imposter syndrome stuff kicks in. There's a bit of an argument for it where it's like if you're feeling imposter syndrome, are you feeling that because you actually don't know what you're talking about or are you, mm. is, is there like some underlying anxiety or, or fear of judgment or whatever that might be? Mm. And it's really interesting to sit with people and have them unpack why they might've been feeling that because athletes and business people have this all the time. Like if you're, if you're a CEO and you're having to speak to all your employees, you want to be pretty damn confident about what you're saying. So when you unpack that, you find out that, I actually wasn't that well prepared for that for that speech or that presentation or whatever it might have been. I sort of rushed it at the end and threw some things together and then had a couple of thoughts the morning of and it mucked it all up versus I've rehearsed this thing about a hundred times. I am so confident on what I'm about to deliver. People could ask me anything. And I find that's that's where that competence equals confidence comes in. So it's a again, I'll 
with with warning, I'm kind of <laughs> shifting and changing that theory as we go on, but that's sort of where I'm at with it now. I I thought what's what's his name the um Jonah. Yeah, John Oliver. Oliver. John, John, yep. Yeah, he does a lot of good stuff in this space, actually. Yeah, he, he, um, yeah. he did a really good uh, episode with um, Dylan Buckley, and he talks about a very yep. similar similar context mm-hmm. uh, uh, concept. He says, um, "Yeah, competency over over comp- over confidence that that kind of thing." There's also just like one of the other things that I remember, and I, I it kind of links to what you were saying, Nick. Is exactly that. That's one element. The second is. There's almost this arc that plays out. There's when you when you care about something, you've got that anticipatory anxiety beforehand, where you're you're feeling a bit stressed and anxious about what happens as you go through the experience. I think he mentioned something along the lines of there's like anger because perhaps you're not performing uh, at the, at the best level that you can, and then at the end there's a sense of sadness because you wish you could do better, um, and there's that sort of arc that plays out. How how true is that in in the people that you come across and work with? Yeah, it's 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 pretty accurate. I, I refer to it more as a roller coaster because mm. there's there's loops and drops and climbs and all sorts of stuff. So I like I like Jonah's idea about that it's a neat arc, um, but for me it's more of a roller coaster, and I think that's more applicable to to a lot of people. But the the thing with so I just want to sort of clear that up too. Like if you're you can be confident and still be anxious. So confidence doesn't yeah. mean that you don't feel any negative emotion. Confident people still feel negative emotion, but they just have an underlying belief that like things are going to be okay or they're going to perform or whatever it is. If anxiety creeps in, there are, there are a couple of ways to go about it. So that acceptance model is more of that we don't try to change it. We don't like there's a radical movement at the moment where it's like if I'm really nervous, I don't even take a deep breath or you know, throw my head in cold water or anything like that. It's like, I'm just going to sit with it until it goes. I haven't seen any research yet to suggest that's actually a good idea. So we'll sort of put a bookmark in that one for now, I think, until someone figures it out. But the roller coaster of emotion that comes with performance is super interesting. Yes, I'd agree that you feel all that stuff, probably in that order as well. But for me, it's more if you're feeling angry, that's about control or loss of control. Mm. So it's like, why do we get angry? Because things haven't worked out the way that we want them to. And if you think about like, you know, you, you're in a relationship and you, your partner has done something that you didn't want them to do and you get frustrated with them, that's that's about control. That's not that's not really anything else. If you're in sport and the opposition are smashing you, right? Like if you're playing footy and you're getting flogged and you're getting angry, it's because things aren't going your way. So there's a there's a lot of that that comes into it too. So there's heaps and heaps of control stuff. That that I work on, yeah, with with my athletes. In in terms of that control, I mean, n- nerves are often the price of entry in any kind of elite sport or business, or if you want to you know, make it to the top or the elite level of anything. Um, so when an athlete or a business person they come they come to you with a with a problem, how do you go about shifting that that mindset? I mean, we've talked about confidence over competence but is there anything that you do or a process that you take them through to you mean confidence shift that? Over confidence sorry confidence over competence yeah, <laughs> sorry, com- competence over confidence sorry <laughs> you, a lot, of, com- lot, lot of competency there mate. yeah competency goes, goes both ways that's all right <laughs> yeah exactly um yeah how do you go about shifting that mindset because yeah i, I i've got some I, I would love to share something after you after you speak but um yeah it'll be good to know what what, what that process is 
Yeah, so uh, it's it's probably going to be hard to summarize, but I'll, I'll try. So because everyone is so complex as, as individuals, what I, what I try to do is treat everyone exactly like that. So if you come in to see me, I want to hear your story and your background and basically how we got to this point and whatever the issue is out of your own mouth. I don't want to hear about it from the media or any of that other stuff or, you know, someone who's referred you telling me what's going on. I I want to hear it from you and I want your spin on it because that way I can see what matters and what probably doesn't matter so much and, and where you might have formed mm. almost sort of like dysfunctional perceptions or beliefs about the story itself. And we, and we just basically mm. unpack all that. The way that I explain it is like, when you first come to work with me, if you walk into my room or, or if we meet online or whatever it is, it's like you bring a suitcase full of all the crap that you've built up and you and you basically walk in and you unpack your suitcase and you throw it all on the floor and you go, righto, let's figure out this mess, right? Let's clean it up. And then we do. And one thing at a time, we fold it up and we put it away or you go, do you need this anymore? No, you don't. Cool, we'll throw that out. So it's a lot of it's a lot of sort of unpacking of stuff just so that I get an understanding of how we got to this point. Because once I know how we got to this point, you know, including things like your values, your upbringing, what you've experienced to date through your sport, how you how you dealt with performance and pressure when you were young, like there's all sorts of stuff we could go through. But then once all that's unpacked and it's all it's all out in the open, we can then apply all of the research, like, because there's so much research in psychology, it's unreal. We can basically apply the model of best fit for whatever the research says is best at the time. So, like, for example, if, if I've got an athlete come in and they empty their suitcase all over the floor, this is metaphorically, obviously, empty their suitcase all over the floor, and it turns out that mum and dad have been a massive issue throughout their whole life. Then I start taking more of a family systems approach, or we actually delve into a bit of that sort of psychoanalysis stuff. You know, it's like, um, what do you tell yourself when you're out on, you know, the court? Oh, that you know, I'm, I'm a failure, I suck, or whatever it is. And mm-hmm. a lot of the time, I'll say, whose voice is it? And it's like, shit, it's dad's or it's mom's. And it's like, yeah, what does your voice say? And it's like, well, it doesn't say anything because it's been overshadowed. You know, like all that kind of stuff. Like it, all of that comes out after you know, after you sort of get to know the athlete in the background. So. It's probably the best way I can explain it for now. Yeah, unbelievable. I, I um, yeah, because because the reason that I that I ask that question is because, yeah, I, I'm a, I feel like I'm a very anxious person. If it, even if it's at at a, something as simple as a work drinks or whether it be just before a presentation or whether it be just before a, a client meeting, I'm I, I always have this. Uh, yeah. Yeah. So, something, and that's it's quite a common it's quite a common thing, right? Is Especially depending on how much you've kind of built up the meeting or or the whatever it's going to be the event, you a lot of the time with anxiety, I'll talk about expectation and options. So if you try to skip ahead and predict the outcome of something, and and there's who God knows how many options for that outcome, you're going to feel anxious. Mm. So mm. it's like. We catch, we catch up and you think, I want Nick to think this of me and I want him to think this of the podcast and I want it to go this way. And then I come in and derail it from the start 
and you kind of go, oh my god, that's that's nothing like how I thought it was going to be. We yeah. we you get into a bit of a spin. So like, there's just too many options yeah. to to conclude, right? So in a performance space, that's where we come back to process. So if we're talking from an acceptance model, it's a shifting of focus. So you go into a meeting and it's like, I'm feeling anxious. We're like, that's all right. I'm nervous because I want this to go well. Okay, how's it going to go well? It's going to go well if I shake hands and and look Nick in the eye when I'm meeting. That's going to be a good start. Okay, cool. I can do that. I know how to do that. Then we tie in the the competence thing because it's like, do you actually know how to shake hands and look someone in the eye and remember their name and do all that sort of stuff? And it's like, I could probably get better at it. Okay, go and practice that. And then you know that the first part of any meeting from there on out, you're going to feel confident with it. And then it's more about, okay, what do I want to get out of this thing? That's just that very specific example. I hope I hope you don't mind. <laughs> no, no yeah. that's that's really good. It's like it's like humans we crave like certainty around certain things. So just like sort of distilling all of that noise down into a particular behavior mm-hmm. is um is like yeah, it seems like that's a really like good way of um dealing with those uncontrollable outcomes. And just distilling it down into a particular behavior or behavioral pattern, which you can easily repeat regardless of the situation. That's that's a perfect word right there was that that controllable stuff. Because you you mm. can control that. Once you get better at and more confident at doing the thing, it'll feel like it's more in control. Right? Mm. But the other thing is with anxiety, is it is it going out or is it coming in? Because a lot of the time what mm. I find with the really anxious, like the business people I work with or the athletes, the anxiety is more of a focus on what do I look like? What am I feeling? What am I going to say? And if if there was a focus outward instead on what are they saying? And do I like, am I actually paying attention to what's being said? Do I look like I'm paying attention? The, the attention sort of goes out rather than focuses inward. You can't think about how anxious you are when you're properly focused on something else can only focus on one thing at a time. I know people think they can multitask, but it's just shifting. So <laughs> it's yeah. just shifting attention. <laughs> mm. So it's it's an interesting way to kind of look at it. Obviously, you know, the, the feelings of anxiety are unpleasant either way. But mm. it is possible to shift focus in or out depending on what you need to do. So that's where the body sensation stuff comes in and that acceptance model because a lot of people will be looking inwards and thinking this feels gross i feel sick yuck what are they thinking of me da, 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 da. and then everything runs away mm. so mm. there's a a <laughs> it's gonna sound rude uh i was i was taking a piss at a public library yesterday uh, and on 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 the wall there was like a bunch of quotes that were just written up and i remember uh, i didn't take a picture but one of the quotes said something along the lines of um, if you feel anxious because someone's looking at you, it's because they probably envy uh, your outfit, your voice, um, the way you present yourself, the way you look, something along those lines. And I thought that was really cool because often when we have all these eyes darting at us, it's almost as if there's a sense of judgment that's that's clouding us. But in fact, perhaps flipping that the flipping the coin around and being like, yeah, perhaps they envy the scarf or the style that I've copied from Mayank. Yeah. <laughs> it's an inside gag, but we'll keep that we'll keep that separate. But um, you know, I actually have a different different uh, viewpoint on that. Actually, yeah. I, I would say I think that's a really good way of putting it. But I, the way that I think of it is like I always just just did, like just um, suppress my own ego. Like no one actually cares. I, I, that's how I kind of look at it. Like that, that's another yeah. Like that's that's just my that's me and my ego talking. It's like if people are looking at me, like my ego is saying that they're looking at me, but they're probably looking past me or Correct. they're they're 
literally don't care. It's like, would I look at someone on the street and make a judgment? No. Like, yeah. it's... It, it's I, I sort of flipped the coin a bit. It's like... So I've got I've got a re- I've got a good story for this actually. So I was I was a personal trainer for a couple of years in Canberra. Had a had a had a little business that I ran out of the gym there. And when I had clients come in, especially during peak hour, it's really busy. And they were new to the gym. They'd be very very aware of how busy it was and what they look like compared to all the gorgeous people yeah. that appeared and and all this sort of stuff. And what I realized after a little while was I'd say okay. What are you afraid of? You're like, well, everyone's really good looking and they're all going to be looking at me and I'm, I'm not doing things properly and all that. And I was like, okay, seriously, stop. Look around and I want you to see if five people are actually looking at you. Look at everyone's eyes. Where are they looking? And sure enough, there'd be like maybe one person that they'd kind of catch eyes with for like half a second. They'd be like, well, no one's actually looking at me. No, they're not. You know why? Because they're all looking at themselves. People come to the gym where there's lots of mirrors who look like that and they want to look at themselves, right? So yeah, it's totally fine. We just do what we got to do, yeah? We do what we got to do yeah. and then we leave. And it, straight away, yeah. you can just see this like, ah, okay, I'm good. Yeah. It was unreal. Yeah. I want to I wanna, I wanna flip it on you, just mm. for one question, around, um, you know, as, as humans, I'm quite fascinated by the fact that we struggle picking up patterns in ourselves. Like we're, we're creatures of habit. We often, you talked about process just a moment ago. We sometimes know the things that really work for us, but for whatever reason, we fail to execute on that or we forget it or we're not like, we don't get to see, I guess, the causation in in things. Um, What have you learned about yourself, perhaps from a pattern point of view or process point of view that makes you feel good and show up um, on a day-to-day basis, even when you don't feel like it? Uh, You mean from like a, like a sort of looking after myself perspective or routines or... Yeah, if, if, even if it's like looking after yourself or perhaps when you've got like heightened nerves, it could be in, it could be in different contexts. Um, perhaps there's different tools and techniques that you use, but I'm sure a lot of it might have been informed by perhaps your lived experience growing up as a professional athlete and dealing with nerves paired with the knowledge and the research and the tools that you've picked up um, practicing in the field. Um and so I think you've got like you've got a nice angle from both ends that that informs the way you operate and the way you you kind of go on day by day. But yeah, I'm just curious. It's quite open. Perhaps you can take it in the context of the daily habits that work well for you. Um, you know, from a morning routine perspective or a daily process, or it could be perhaps nerves. You know, perhaps you've got like an AFL client coming in, and you know, like <clears throat> you know they're not feeling so great. You might be feeling a bit nervous about okay, this could go pear shaped and they're a bit frustrated and angry like what are the things that tend to calm you down and center and ground you um yeah because i'm sure you like it just it's part of the human arc you know yeah 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 so th- this will this will probably sound a bit weird I'll, I'll i'll sort of go on a bit of a, a bit of a journey and try to answer it as best i can um routine wise i i don't have one i have never been a fan of 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 like structure and routine and things like that i hate it i'll, I'll have like you know I wake up regularly the same time and things like that because I know it's good for me. Um, what I have realized, one part of, of the answer to that is what I have realized is that although my insight has gotten better as I've gotten older, I don't think anyone really knows themselves as well as they think they do. And if they want to know something about themselves, they should ask someone who's very close to them. So there have been, I've lost count of how many times like a family member or, or Ash, my lovely fiance, will like, I'll ask like, 
is that is that like a thing? Do I do that? And she's like, yeah, <laughs> you do. That's of course you do. That's a thing. And it's like, oh man, really? And then it's kind of like that glass shattering moment, right? With regards to the way that I sort of cope with things, I I honestly think this was something that came out of that swimming and being overly confident and things like that. Was this probably bordering on reckless uh, enjoyment when it comes to something that's going to be nerve wracking or really really difficult? Because one of the things that I've that I've told a few people is a few more people now is when <laughs> so my 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 best ever race through swimming my favorite race of all it was the fastest i ever swam it was the best experience was i was in japan it was a 50 freestyle and that whole experience was like it was just unreal like talking about it now is giving me goosebumps but the the whole thing was like i've peaked like i've actually peaked Mm. the feeling that comes with that is is like irreplaceable right i've never done drugs or anything so it's probably something like that but (laughs) i'd assume (laughs) but for someone who doesn't do that stuff it's really, really hard to replace. So I will deliberately find myself in just ridiculously challenging circumstances just for the fun of it because it's like, all right, cool. Let's let's see, let's see what I'm capable of in this situation. Hmm. Whether I'm prepared for it or not, I just it's like, let's just see what happens. There's there's a bit of that's why I use the word reckless, because it's a little bit like, let's just hmm. let's just have a crack. Hmm. See how we go. So that's probably as best i can do do you do you see part of yourself in some of the clients that you see absolutely yeah yeah so depending on what what does that bring up (laughs) well probably probably the biggest the biggest thing for me is that because i see a lot of men so Mm. a lot of men resonate with my approach which like I'm, i'm very informal I'm quite sort of hedonistic just in the way that I live. So I, I just like to enjoy things, right? No one really knows how long they're here for, so you might as well have a good time. So like I, I can be serious at times, but a lot of the time, like everything is so serious all the time. If you're going to come to me and you're going to talk about uncomfortable things, we're at least going to try to have a bit of fun while you do it in a very relaxed way. It's not all really heavy and tense and pressure and all this. That, that, they have enough of that stuff. You come and see me and it's relaxed. That side of things is when I'm seeing that in other athletes, especially the adolescents that I work with, is great to see them going through similar transitions to what I went through. And it's like, hey, I've had a fallout with a friend of mine who doesn't compete and they don't get it. And they think I'm completely full of myself. And then you unpack that and straight away it's like, that's going to happen. <laughs> and it's probably going to happen a few more times as well. Little things like that definitely is is what I say, yeah. It's a lot. Mm. That's just one. I think we've also touched on this idea of like like values and behaviors like much a, a bit earlier on in the conversation. Um, c- could you could you just explain to us that that whole concept? Because again, uh, listen listening to 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 a lot of content in this space, it would be, be really good to know. Like one one of the examples that uh, that I've heard is just around. Like humans, we tend to not go through any point pointless pain, and sometimes, and a way to overcome that pointless pain is to have a point to it. The way that you do that is through values and, and behaviors. 
are you able to just articulate for us and for, for our audience like what what we mean by connecting to a value and, and how that might translate to a particular behavior firstly i would say it depends it depends on it depends on the values right so i'll, I'll use i'll use myself as an example because i know a few of mine so the the main thing for me is uh so so purpose is obviously one so a lot of the time in our space we find that there's like a positive spin put on everything so it's like if you go to do a values questionnaire online it comes out of positive psychology so it's all very sort of um it's a bit fluffy but to to me but what i'm more about is the sort of the pragmatic approach to things what's really important for you right so for me it's purpose loyalty family things like that so they're the things that drive me and early on it was they were all there but it would it was sort of being pursued through a really competitive space so swimming mm-hmm. i could still i could still be a good family member and i could still be loyal to my family and I, I had that sense of purpose. Now it's just that, but I'm in a psychology space instead. The competitive side of me has dropped off quite a bit, I must admit. Getting a little bit older, I think that sort of disappears. It's not as savage as it used to be, so that's probably a good thing. <laughs> but all the all the sort of underlying values are still there. So if people are interested, they can jump online and have a look through just a like one of those positive psych ones is always a good place to start. So I think mm. the I think the website is character strengths inventory, something like that, which has a little bit of value stuff on it. There's like Martin Seligman was the guy who basically is like the godfather of positive psych. So he has a bunch of stuff like free resources and that, that people can look at if they want. It's a good place to start to at least sort of try to unpack where your values might be. But once you know at least a few of them and what they are, you then basically, that's your framework. That That is like the basis of then what you build on for, for what the rest of your life looks like. So if it turns out that, family and close relationships are really important to you and then you find out that you live in the single life and you don't really have that many friends or you don't spend that much time with any family and you think well no wonder i don't feel very good there, there needs to be a bit of a match-up between those things in order to get that the sort of the positive emotion that's associated with it the thing is we don't know where values come from it's like the nature nurture debate value yeah, values right. we can make assumptions and probably educated guesses, but values are there. They're just there, whatever they are. And once you figure out what they are, we can then apply them in the real world. That's probably the more pragmatic approach coming out, but yeah. <laughs> so so our values, are, you mentioned that they're inherent like to you. So it's not like if you go into a particular industry that you that you have a set of values, it's something that's just you're born with really. And then if you go into a particular industry whether it be corporate or whether it be sports it's about okay these are my values how do i link them to a behavior that is appropriate within that industry to to excel yeah so so for example like if we if we apply a business lens to it there's a um so hogan uh they they do personality assessments in in business Mm. one of their assessment pieces which belongs to a couple of them it looks at your motivations and values for work. So an example of some of the things on there are like security, the financial side of things, aesthetics, altruism, things like that. And then they sort of, like after you fill the thing out, you sort of get rated on a bit of a scale. If something like power, which is one of the values on there, is really high for someone, 
then it's important to them and they're going to pursue roles that allow them to have some level of power. If recognition is massive, then they're going to want recognition. If you have someone come in who who goes through that assessment and they've got really low power, really low recognition and high altruism because all they want to do is just help people and they're pretty and they're pretty happy to not even get any credit for it. They're the people that we find in the sort of um, you know the volunteer space and and that sort of thing where they're just naturally inclined that way. So it's very interesting when you find out what those things are because a lot of the time we don't know. So this is where the assessment piece has come in. There's a huge, huge swell coming into spaces now where it's just it's like compulsory. It's like you've got to do this huge battery of assessments so that we have an idea of what you're probably going to be like when you work here because it doesn't tend to change a whole lot. And values is one part of that that's gaining a lot of traction in the space. Yeah. You know, like um, as you were speaking, it just made me think about this world of... I guess there's always like like a sense of judgment that's attached to some of these things, uh, and perhaps around values, it's what you are and who you are and what you value versus what you want to value. And for some people, that is power and recognition. But when they come across that, perhaps in that Hogan assessment, they might feel as if uh, like I feel a bit of shame and guilt around that. Actually, I should be altruistic because the world tells me that you know it's that whole positive toxicity element to it where everything needs to be positive everything needs to be good and it's i don't know if there's necessarily a question here because it's quite nebulous and i think it depends on the person but i think sometimes what i've struggled with is a like i think i need a i have a couple of values that i think matter to me but there's also a few others that i still just need to figure out in life but coming across something that perhaps doesn't fully uh, gel with what i think i should be there's often a friction there because I, I get given that perhaps, you know, I'm altruistic or I'm not altruistic, but I should be more. Uh, I'm not sure if that's making sense, but for like, how do you help people kind of come to terms with, hey, you've like rated highly in terms of recognition and getting credit for your work and power. That's completely okay. Don't shy away from that. In a world where we've got so much stimulus and noise around be altruistic, be giving, be community oriented don't worry about money when that in fact is something that someone values. Yeah, that's, it's really, really good point. So that's, that sort of dissonance that you're talking about where it's the, the values of this, but I want them to be this. That is, that is quite difficult to, to work through. What I tend to do is have a very, it's quite a blunt, realistic conversation about what, what does that actually look like and what does it mean and back to the sort of the psychoanalytic side of things is like, where exactly is that coming from? Because yeah. if it's if it's a sort of general, broader societal perception that you have that you need to be this altruistic and giving and, and you need to do all the things, then I, I, I get people to basically tell me exactly where that's coming from. And once we kind of unpack where it's coming from, a lot of the time it doesn't even make sense. They're like, I actually don't know where that comes from. Okay, what do you really want? Like if I waved a magic wand, what does it really look like? Mm. Oh, I want to do da, 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 da. Okay, cool. Let's let's then apply a realistic scenario to exactly what you just said, and then we kind of build it from there. So I think the other thing is people try to launch one way or the other. So if I've let's for example, I've got huge power and recognition on that on that values scale, and then I go, man, I really should be more altruistic. It's just not going to work. 
you can't go out and help everyone and 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 sort of dictate what happens and then say everyone congratulate me for what i just did well you probably can i don't know there's probably a lot of people like that in the voluntary space but that's that's not really our understanding of altruism right mm. so even that like that that right there is a classic like i have an idea of what i thought it was like and as i've just unpacked it with you i've realized that's probably not actually true so all this sort of thought challenging and unpacking of stuff when you have a conversation with someone else about it you you tend to realize a lot of the thoughts that you had about something in the assumptions they're probably not as accurate as you think they are and they don't make as much sense so Talking through these things is great, but people don't tend to talk about it, right? Like no one's sitting down with their friends and saying, so I think I would desire a lot of power and influence, but I want to be more altruistic. What do you think? <laughs> it's kind of a high level conversation to be having. Maybe some people do that, but normally you come in and talk to someone like me and you're like, hey, something's wrong. And then we realize what that is through that process. But one of the big parts on this is with men, especially especially nowadays with this sort of recent shift towards you know the toxic masculinity kind of conversations and and all that sort of thing men need to be more emotional and things like that i find that men men don't actually want to do any of those things it's probably good for them too every now and then mm. but there's there's like this it's almost like this forced sort of push into it where if something goes wrong have a cry have a cry about it or go and yeah. go and talk to us talk about your feelings and all that man we, we don't like to do that we go you know what i'm going to do i'm going to shut up shop and i'm going to try to deal with it myself and if i'm completely down the shit shoot then i might maybe reach out to a mate or something and, th- and say something really obscure hoping they're going to get it like how are you going yeah all right <laughs> and hoping they pick up on that and then go you normally say good what, what is all right, man? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and most blokes just go, yeah, right, good. Yep. Yeah. <laughs> so yeah. there's there's a lot of a lot of stuff to unpack. I feel like we're gonna have to do a part two to this podcast. I think there's <laughs> yeah. yeah, I reckon. The, yeah, you know, as as your like yes to a part two, by the way. So yeah, we can check okay, good. those later. That 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 other part is um just as you're speaking, like I, I feel a strong sense of connection to you almost to the point where I'm like, like shit, like I, I wouldn't mind picking up some of your services and, and seeing what that looks like. Obviously it depends on your availability and, and all of that. <laughs> and if you've got time for me, uh, mm-hmm. kidding. Uh, the, um, but like picking, picking a psychologist and picking a person to work with is often difficult because Manic and I are fortunate to have this hour with you where we can unpack what's going through your mind, how you approach things and based off that it's like hang on a second we might work well together and obviously there's an assessment that you make on perhaps us or whoever's coming your way on whether they might work with you but you know i've i've cycled through two folks so far given it a given a couple of sessions with both just not feeling that they're the right like we just don't gel completely um obviously there's a lot to unpack on that one but what advice do you have to people around picking picking someone the questions to ask because i think when we were speaking you mentioned something along the lines of there's there's quite a few questions someone can ask a psychologist to get a sense of whether they're the right fit um and part of it i think is russian roulette um we had a guy called anubav dingra who came on i think uh, episode six or sub 10 talking about how he cycled through 
17 or 20 different therapists before he found the one that worked for him. And I don't mm-hmm. think that's an uncommon story. I think that's people often have that experience. So do you have you know anything you can share um, sort of in that domain? I'd, I'd probably, I wouldn't put a number on anything, but what I would say is if you're, if you go to see someone or you go to see two people, three or five, whatever it might be, don't be disheartened by it not working out. Because the, the way that I, the way that I explain it to men is you don't just go on a date with someone random that you looked up online and then you're out at the date and you think this isn't great and then you go but you know what it's too inconvenient for me to try to find another date so i'm just going to stick with this person (laughs) that just sounds horrible so it's more of a if you're if you're with that person give it a chance too right so like my advice would be don't just go for one session go for two or three probably no more than three i think by three you've probably figured it out at that point but mm. allow yourself to be vulnerable when you're in there. Allow yourself to be open. But even you can even add a disclaimer at the start, right? Like, I'm quite uncomfortable to be here. I've never spoken to a psychologist before, if you're in that boat. Can we just, can we just sort of have a chat and get to know each other because I'm, I'm not really sure what to expect? They're going to be okay with that. If, if someone came to me and said, I don't want to talk about anything that's going to make me upset, can we just, can we just chat? I'd be like, yeah, sure. I always get to know you. Like, that's fine. Because normally what a psychologist will do, if they could, through that conversation, we'll pick up on bits and pieces anyway. Yeah. Because we're pretty good at reading yeah. people. So you you yeah. think you're kind of hiding. And it's like, I'm I'm okay. I'm okay with this because I'm just talking about whatever I'm talking about. And we'll 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 make notes of that stuff anyway and and very, very gently introduce certain topics. But it's more of a if you don't get the feeling right away, that's okay. The feeling can it can build, so give it at least three, I would say. Yeah, 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 and <clears throat> yeah, I think there's there's often a fine line around wanting to give someone the right crack versus listening to your intuition and your gut. Um, and I yeah, there there's there's a there's a bit in that one, but anyway, yeah. let's let's. Uh, I think I think that's about it on our end for this one. Just wanted to say a massive thank you and. A massive thank you to Ash as well, your beautiful fiance. Uh, I, I think I said partner earlier, but I'm cleaning up my act on that one. <laughs> uh, <laughs> That's right. She won't mind. <laughs> so, yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, but just just in terms of like where people can find you, um, you obviously work at a practice, you work at a school. Um, where can people find you? And whether you want to give details around pricing or any of that, or perhaps that can be saved when people reach out to you and, and flesh out details. Um, this is completely your space to take it wherever you like. Yeah, so um, so Seed Norlis Psychology is, is the business name. So C, I don't know if my writing is the right way around, but C E D E, yeah. yeah. Um, that's so on Instagram. Seed Norlis Performance Psych is the Instagram handle. Um, that's probably the easiest place to find. Otherwise, just Seed Norlis Psychology is, is my website. And there's there's ways to get in contact with me through the website and stuff as well. I prefer to do it through the website and not Insta if people want to message me um yeah but pricing pricing stuff like i'm happy i had to disclose that it's it's um look psychology is expensive in australia um really really for what for what the uh sort of going rate is so the aps charge about 300 dollars an hour 
I am significantly less than that. <laughs> so, because I would just fight 300 bucks an, an hour is that is that is a lot. Um, and if you're Australian and you have a Medicare card and things, and there's a Medicare rebate and that, then it, it does end up being a lot cheaper than that. So you're probably looking at about a hundred to 150 out of pocket, depending. Yeah. Um, yeah. Which is which is not too bad falls, in the end, that really. Falls under so the ten sessions. That falls under the ten yep, sessions. Yeah, yeah. So that's the ten session. Yeah. So, uh, but any athlete that that might be listening, that's part of sort of a governing body or an institution, they they tend to have funding for this stuff as well. So, um, that the institutes or the team or or the association will actually pay for this stuff as well. So, reach out to them and, and find out if it's available. They might have psych on staff anyway that can help you out. But yeah, for me for me directly, then that's that's where to find me. Uh, Thank you. Thank you very much. Um, oh, thank you both. I've, I've really enjoyed it. Yeah. And that's a wrap for this episode. If you're enjoying our conversations, please help us out with a quick rate and review on Spotify and Apple Podcasts. All the conversations are recorded in video, so check us out on Instagram and Facebook at our handle at BottledUpOz. Drop us a comment or a message if any of these conversations resonate with you. And most importantly, please share this podcast with anyone who might need it. So as always, this is Bottled Up. Thanks for being part of our family and see you next time.